We come now to our sermon passage this morning, and it's actually, um, if you were here last week, it's going to sound familiar because the first eight verses are exactly the same. Um, <laughs> we're here in uh, John 13. And uh, just be before I read it, John, the Gospel of John is fascinating. So you're going through, starts in the first chapter, and from the first chapter to the twelfth chapter, it covers three years pretty quick. It's like 20 scenes from three years, and it runs along at a pretty fast pace. We hit chapter 13, the narrative grinds to a halt. Chapter 13 through 18 is one night. It's one night. And the reason that happens is because what happened on that evening, this conversation that Jesus had, the things that Jesus did, the things that Jesus said, were so important in, God, in John's mind as he's writing this gospel as an old man, these things that happened to him when he was a young man, it was 60 years before probably, was so present in his mind and so crucial to him to explain who Jesus was and what he was about, he decided that this is where I'm going to focus all the attention. It's like if you're watching a movie, and this is like a two-hour movie, this, these next chapters are the one scene that shows you the essence of what this story is meant to tell us. So with all that said, we are here at John 13, verses 1 through 17. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of uh, Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands, and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean. You are clean. They're not every one of you. For he knew he was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you, that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do. Father, thank you for your word. You show us who you are. And we, you invite us to see who we are in you. So I pray this morning as we focus our intention on your word here from John 13, that you would speak by your spirit, that you would seal to our hearts the truths that are contained in this passage. And that you would show us the glory, the beauty, the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And move our hearts to love him all the more and to become like him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So the same is this. Jesus and his disciples have walked into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And as they walk in, it, this is directly after what's usually called the triumphal entry. The scene where Jesus is marching in, he's riding a donkey. People are so excited, they're ripping palm tree branches off of trees and throwing them. I don't know if that was planned, or they just were like, we've got to throw something in front of him. And they just, you know, ripped every palm tree branch down in Jerusalem. There's like a million and a half people were probably in the city on estimates. And they're all cheering. This is great. The king is here. The king is here. And Jesus' disciples are these backwoods guys who work with their hands, who grew up in poverty, who weren't really educated, and they're marching beside them. I'm sure they're looking around thinking like, all right, this is great. <laughs> we are right. This is going to be amazing. Like Jesus, they're thinking, Jesus will have the big throne. And that's good. We'll get the little cards. We'll get the ones beside them. You know, we know the important friend in high places. And so they get to this Passover dinner, and they sit there in this room, and they sit down to eat, and they do something that as people who did not grow up in wealth, they didn't do something, I should say, that they had always done. In the ancient world, you go in to eat, you've got to wash your feet. You've been wearing sandals, the roads are made of dirt. Just imagine the amount of uh, animal dung that's on the roads. Their feet are filthy. They've got to wash their feet. Well, now they've walked in this room, and they're feeling very important. And they're thinking, well, I'm not going to wash my feet. I'm, I'm Jesus' buddy. So they, it's like a showdown. They're all kind of looking at each other, wondering which of the 12 of them is going to admit, okay, I'm the lowest person in this room. I'm the servant. I'm the least important. I'll wash everybody else's feet. And the farce goes on until they're literally eating dinner. Food has already been served, and they're all sitting there with their stinky And so Jesus gets up, and without a word, he puts on the clothes of a servant, he takes a water basin, and he goes to each of his stubborn disciples to wash their feet for them. And they're shocked. They're shocked out of their, their, their stubbornness, because all of a sudden, their Lord and their teacher, the eternal Son of God, who was put on flesh to dwell among them, is kneeling in front of them and washing their disgusting feet. Now, last week I mentioned a couple of takeaways from us from this passage. And I'm going to hit a few more this week, but I want to reiterate the ones from last week. So I mentioned three takeaways, and the first one was that God's never just trying to teach, a, teach us a lesson. God's never just trying to put us in our place. Jesus didn't look at his stubborn disciples and say, now I need to beat them into shape so they understand how wrong and stupid they are right now. No, God doesn't work that way. For his people, he never shows us the stubbornness of our sin without showing us the beauty of who he is and the magnitude of his grace. And so in that room, he wasn't just trying to shame them for being dumb or being prideful. He was trying to show them a better way. He never exposes our sin and our stubbornness without also showing us the magnitude of his grace. The second one is this, that Jesus defines what power is. I could really say this about any word. We have to entrust our dictionaries to Jesus. But Jesus defines what true power is. Because the passage tells us that God had given everything into Jesus' hands. It literally says that. Everything had been given into Jesus' hands. And what does he do with the man he knows is going to betray him is at that table? And his stubborn disciples are 
refusing to wash their disgusting feet. And what does Jesus do with all power that's given to his hands? He doesn't squash Judas. He kneels down and he washes their feet. Jesus is saying, this is true power. You say power and you think strength. You think dominance. But true power kneels down to serve in a broken world. And so when we speak of power, when we think of power, we have to start with Jesus. Because what he did was not an exception to his power. It was the demonstration of his power. And the third one is this. And I joked that this is always my last sermon point. We have to revel in the love of God. Because this scene is like the encapsulation of the gospel. Jesus, who sh should have all glory and honor, gets up from his place of honor, strips off his clothes of honor to take on the clothes of a servant, to kneel down and wash the feet of his stubborn people. That is the gospel. That's the gospel in one scene. So revel in the fact that Jesus didn't just stoop down this evening to wash his disciples' feet, that he took uh, the form of a servant, as it says in Philippians 2, that the eternal Son of God, worthy of all glory and honor, stooped down to join us in our weakness, to take on to himself our sin, to find us and wash us clean. So those are the three takeaways, and I've got a few more because there's so many treasures to this passage, and I'm sure I'm only scratching the surface. And the first one's this. We said it a little while ago. We are who Jesus says we are. We are what Jesus says we are. You'll notice in the passage that Peter, in verse 8, Peter initially refuses to allow Jesus to wash his feet. Peter's been shocked out of his stubbornness, and he realizes that there's the Son of God about to touch his disgusting feet, and Peter says, You washed my feet? In fact, I mentioned it last week in, in the Greek where, where, where Peter says, No, you'll never wash my feet. He says in one sentence, emphatically, three different ways, No. He says, No, this is never going to happen. He says, No, you will never wash my feet to the end of the ages. Peter's like, This cannot happen. This cannot happen. And then Jesus says what in verse 8? Or, or, or to answer that, Jesus says that to have a part with him, to have a part in what Jesus is doing and Jesus is about, you must be washed. You must be washed. Now I want to point something out that we might miss here. What Jesus says is that to have a part with him and what he's doing is not a matter of us, or Peter, or us, doing anything. He doesn't say, Peter, to have a part in what I'm doing, I need you to jump through this hoop. He says, Peter, to have a part with what I'm doing is a matter of being washed by me. It's a matter of being, uh, not doing anything, it's a matter of receiving with open hands and being cleansed. And that's just true of the very essence of what faith is. Faith, by definition, is something that looks outside of who we are. Faith is not a matter. That's why it's never about our strength of faith. Some seasons of life we're going to feel like we have such strong faith in God. We know what He's doing. We're, we're in it. We, we feel like, yes, I'm on the right track. And we're linked up, me and God. We know we're on the same page. There's some seasons of life when it's going to feel like your strength of faith is a strength that you are spinning on. And there's no, it's not going to hold you up. It's going to feel that way. But the point of faith is not the strength of our faith. 
If I sit down in this chair, no matter the amount of confidence I have in this chair, my confidence is not guaranteed that that chair is going to hold me up. What holds me up is the strength of that chair. It's the same way when we have our faith in God through Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus, it does not matter our degree of confidence and the, the measure or the strength of our faith. Our confidence is the thing we have faith in. Jesus is what holds us. And that's what he's telling Peter that having a part in what Jesus is about is not jumping through hoops. It's not showing and demonstrating your strength of faith. It's not doing anything. It's being washed by Him. So Peter hears this, and he responds exactly how I would if I was in this situation that I'd like to imagine. Peter says, well then, if that's true, then wash, wash all of me. Wash not just my feet, like just get more water. And get as much of that water on me as possible. Wash all of me. My head, my hands, and my feet. Please do. But Peter is still a little bit mistaken here. Because Peter's thinking two things. The first thing he's thinking is this. That the mistake that Peter's just made. The stubbornness that he's just shown in this room. Refusing to wash his own feet. And expecting his uh, fellow disciples to wash his feet. Peter's thinking that the mistake he just made has meant that whatever grace he had received from Jesus before this is gone. Peter's thinking that I just made such a huge mistake that it has wiped out the grace of Jesus and I need to start over again. Peter's thinking, i got to get washed all over again because I made such a huge blunder here. I sinned so big that i got to start over. Yes, Jesus cleansed me, but my, that sin was a little bit too much. Or that was one too many. I got started. The second thing Peter's thinking is, uh, well, Jesus must be talking about this physical water. And so as I said, Peter's saying, if washing my feet means I have a part with you, then like, just get that water on me. Get, it, get me all the way in. The, I'll get in the water. Don't just put it on me. I'll get in it. Like, more water, please. <laughs> Jesus corrects both of those. Look at verse 10. And he says, Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean. You are clean. Later in John 15, this same night, Jesus reminds them, and we'll get to that in a few sermons, he tells them, You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He tells them that again. But Peter is clean. Why? Because Jesus has pronounced him clean. Jesus is speaking not just of having Peter having his feet washed. He's speaking of a deeper spiritual cleansing that happens when we hear God tell us who we are and we believe it. When we hear God tell us who we are again and we rest in that. Peter doesn't need the maximum amount of water here because his hope isn't in this water. His hope is that Jesus has declared him clean. That he is who and what Jesus says he is. That's Peter's confidence. And I bring all this up, and I'm belaboring this point, because so many of us struggle with this question, how can I be sure that I'm saved? How can I be sure that the grace of God has found me and I can't lose it? How can I be sure? And I've heard that my whole life, and I've heard so many different answers to that question um, you know, I've heard people tell me I can be sure if I'm saved or I, that Jesus has found me. I can be sure if I can name the date and time 
when I decided to follow Jesus. So if I can tell you that on April 6th at 3.23 p.m. I prayed this prayer, that's my confidence because I can remember that time when I came to Jesus. I can remember when I was born again. If I can do that, then I can be sure. But that can't be it. That's not faith in Jesus. That's faith in my faith. That's faith in my memory. And I can barely remember what I had for lunch yesterday. I can't have faith in my memory. <laughs> so that can't be it. My confidence, I can't be sure I'm saved just because I can remember a moment when I had some big emotions, even if that was the moment I came to faith. God never tells us that, you know, that's your confidence, knowing the moment it happened. Other people might tell you, and have been told this, you can be sure if you've been baptized exactly right. And usually what they mean is this. If you've been baptized with the right amount of water. If you've been totally immersed. Like if there was a big pool and you got all the way under the water. Then you were baptized. You can be sure. Then. But if you were sprinkled. If you had water poured on you. No way. That doesn't count. Your trust and your confidence is in the amount of water that got in your body. But I mean Jesus deals with that explicitly here. Right? He's, he's kind of literally telling Peter this. His assurance can't be that he's been cleansed by the amount of water that touched his body in a religious ceremony, even one as important and crucial as baptism. Or I've heard this, that I can be sure of my salvation if after I have came to faith, after I've trusted in Jesus the last time that I stopped sinning. That it's a matter that God will forgive me my past sins, but then I get a clean slate. And I'm starting over. And it's a matter of me to keep those, keep things in balance. I got a clean slate, forgiven the past things, but if I do another one, I gotta, I gotta go right back. I gotta ask for forgiveness all over again. I gotta start over because I'm so dirty that Jesus has got to cleanse me all over again in the exact same way. But that can't be it either because again, that's just hoping in myself. That's hoping in my good intentions. And if I start digging into my intentions. You know, if I didn't have mixed motives, I wouldn't have any motives at all. Guys, the only way for us to be sure of our salvation, the only way to be sure is to take it out of our hands altogether. I mean, altogether. After all, I'm not the one who saves me. I'm not the one who cleanses me. It's Jesus. And if Jesus tells me I'm cleansed, then I can let go of my confidence in my own abilities and my doubts and my failures. And I can leave it to Him. I am who he says I am. That's the gospel. Jesus didn't come to give us hoops to jump through. He came to set us free from that. And so our, our confidence and our assurance that we are saved is when we hear his voice and we rest in what he says. Yeah, that's it. So that's it. We are who Jesus says we are. That leads me to my second takeaway from this. We can live as people who are Jesus, who are who Jesus says we are. That sentence is tough. We can live out of this. <laughs> this is a livable thing. And here's what I mean. I want to take two key areas to, to, to walk through this. How do we live out of this truth that we are who Jesus says we are when we sin and when we serve? When we sin and when we serve. So how do we live out of who Jesus, that we are who Jesus says we are when we sin? And I don't mean, I've said this before, I don't mean like you stub your toe on the coffee table and you say cuss word. I mean, when you really mess up. When you really, really mess up. 
I mean, don't say cuss words necessarily. Stuff. Anyway, um, when we really miss it, what does it mean for us to live as people who are who Jesus says we are? Can your sin negate the assurance from Jesus that you are cleansed? No. No. It cannot. Your sin does not have that power. It doesn't. It does not. So we can stop giving our sin, even the big stuff, more power than it actually has. Scripture tells us that sin has no power to condemn us. When we are in Christ, when we have come to Him by faith, that our sin cannot condemn us. That we don't have to wallow in shame or guilt. When we mess up, we don't have to have like a probation time period where we feel really, really bad before we run to Jesus for grace. It's not like we mess up real big and Jesus starts the stopwatch and He's waiting for you to feel really bad for three weeks. And then at the end of those three weeks, then you can say, okay, I feel forgiven now. It's not about your feelings anyway. Your sin does not have that amount of power. Now that's, I'm not making light of sin. Sin is the worst thing in the world. Sin against God, against other people, sin against ourselves is the worst thing in the world. And God takes it so seriously that He came to this world to take care of it. He didn't leave it in anybody else's hands. It's that serious. So I'm not making light of it. But in, in, in comparison with the magnitude of the grace of Jesus, our sin does not have the power to condemn us. Our sin does not have the power to define us. When we mess up and we mess up big, do not waste a single moment wallowing in guilt and shame. Turn to Jesus right away. He's right there. Don't waste a moment as if it is not true that you are who Jesus says you are. Your struggle with sin and selfishness may be intense and real. You're a human being. It is. None of us are unique in that. But it cannot be fun. And in the long term, the long run, we pull back and we take the long view. It cannot win out over the grace of God. Even in the seasons when it feels like our temptations are just ruling us. Even in the seasons when it feels like that sin that I keep coming back to will not stop. When we pull back and we take the long view. It cannot not give way to God's grace. In light of the truth that we are who Jesus says we are, our sin has become a lie that is being unraveled. It is not a greater truth about who we are that is revealing itself. It is a lie that is being unraveled. And it will be unraveled over time. We may struggle and continue to struggle, but consider this. The beginnings of our faith here, our relationship with God, in the long run, in the long run, in the measure of eternity, in the measure of God's new heaven and new earth where all things are made new, if it's a map this long, if it's a timeline this long, your struggle with sin is a dot over here. It's a dot over here. You may struggle with sin your whole life. In fact, you will to your final birth. But it cannot win out over your heart over time. It does not have the power to convince you does not have the power to define you. In Christ, you are cleansed. Come to Him by faith and receive that. And know that. 
Sin is a serious thing, and I'm not minimizing that, but again, Jesus is giving Peter here and us a clear picture of the magnitude of his grace. He's telling Peter here, you have not dirtied yourself, even though you messed up really big right there. You have not dirtied yourself to the point of needing to be washed all over again. I've said you are clean. You are clean. And in comparison with the magnitude of Jesus' grace, even that huge sin that we just saw Peter commit, it's like somebody who just took a bath and got their feet a little bit dirty and they need to be rinsed off before they had to. Peter feels like this sin has sunk who he is to the absolute bottom and has dirtied him to the uttermost. But Jesus says, no, you seem to have your feet washed. You are clean. I've said you're clean. And Jesus is saying, we're about to have dinner. <laughs> you don't need to be washed and bathed completely. You don't need to start over. Your sin, in comparison with the magnitude of my grace, is like having your feet a little bit dirty and they need to be. Peter's sin has no power to condemn him or define him, and that's true of us too. Our confidence is Jesus, always Jesus, only Jesus. Any addition to Jesus is a subtraction. Our confidence is always Jesus and only Jesus. So when you mess up, as I've said, don't waste a single moment before you flee to his grace. Don't close your ears off to hear that who he is telling you you are, a beloved child of God, someone who is cleansed and being cleansed in actuality in your life. Don't waste a single moment closing your ears off thinking God wants you to jump through some guilt to before you can lean on that grace. Not at all. Now, you're going to have natural feelings when you mess up. It's part of who we are. Natural feelings of guilt when you mess up. But there's no guilt that God's waiting for you to jump through. Turn to Him right away. And that's what repentance means after all. I think we think of the word repent. Repent is a word I used to hate, and now it's one of my favorite words. I hated it because it always meant for me some angry dude on a street corner with a bullhorn and a sandwich sign. Repent because you're going to split hell wide open. But in the lot, repentance is like one side of the coin and the other side is faith. Repentance is turning away from something that is wearing you out and tearing you to pieces and turning to Jesus who has this inexhaustible fountain of love and life for you. So repentance is never just turning around. I've heard that definition my whole life. It is not just turning from something. It is turning to Jesus. It's turning our ears off to the lies and turning to the truth that we are who says we are. I'm belaboring this point, but I'm belaboring this point because I think this is something we struggle with when we sin, when we mess up it. We feel like, oh, I'm starting over. I just demolished the whole building. Man, I was doing all right. I was doing pretty good. And now I'm going to start over. That's not true. All of this is why we actually have, our, the structure of our worship service isn't us just doing some things. This is why we have a confession of sin and assurance of pardon every single week. It is not because we come in this door and we are just filthy and we need to get saved all over again. When we confess our sins and we receive this assurance of pardon, it is not us starting over. Not at all. What's happened is we've walked through this world all week. We've walked through our own sin. We've walked through the sin of other people. We've walked through the brokenness of this world and our feet are dirty. 
And we are about to hear the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are about to commune with Him in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We are about to receive His grace and the assurance of what He says in His Word. And we need to have our feet washed before we have That's what that is. It is not us starting over every week. It is not us finding new forgiveness like, you know, Saturday night we were going to split hell wide open and then Sunday morning we come in. No, it's us receiving assurance and having our feet washed before them. So that's how the truth of, you know, we are who Jesus says we are impacts us when we sin. But what about when we serve? What about when we do good works, when we serve? Well, if what Jesus says is true, and it is, then our motivation is dramatically transformed when we serve. Because we aren't serving and doing good things trying to define ourselves or trying to prove ourselves. Jesus and who He is means we, have, we can give up trying to prove ourselves. You don't have to prove anything. Serving others and doing good works, these are fantastic things. This is what God is calling us to in the rest of our lives, to put our time, to put our money, to put our energy and our life towards serving other people and doing good things. But that is not us proving ourselves. That's the fruit of God's grace at work. The root always remains confidence in Jesus. The root is always Jesus. The fruit is the good works. It's never the other way around. We are not trying to prove ourselves. We don't have to justify ourselves in our own sight. We don't have to justify ourselves in any other person's opinion. We don't have to justify ourselves in God's eyes because He's already done that. We don't have to prove ourselves. In just the same way that our sin does not have the power to condemn us, our good works do not have the power to justify us. So we have the invitation of Jesus to stop giving our sin more power than it actually has and to stop giving our good works more power than they actually have. We have at the root of who we are a worthiness that cannot give way. And so think about the things you're involved in in your life. Some of us in here are students. And, and being a student is hard because you're literally in a situation where you are graded. You're being asked to prove, <laughs> to prove your knowledge. And that's fine. You know, it, 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 teachers grade in order to let us know, you know, we got this thing right, we got this thing wrong, and we can improve in that. But there's, it's so easy when you're a student to live and to die on those grades. To treat those grades like they are the proof of who we are. That we're trying to prove ourselves. Like that defines who we are. But if, you, if we think that, then we'll never have joy in our studies. We'll never have joy in knowledge. But if we have at the root of who we are, this worthiness that is ours in Jesus, that we've found a love that will not let us go, then we can step out into that journey of knowledge with joy. Because we aren't trying to prove ourselves. We aren't trying to define ourselves. We can delight in learning. And even make good grades. Maybe. Maybe not. But you see how it changes dramatically. Think about your job. Your job. You know, so much of our culture and our mind, uh, we're, we're so geared toward 
climbing the ladder of success. As if, if you don't receive a promotion in the next two years, then you obviously are just failing. That's a problem. You know, you, you haven't ascended this ladder. You weren't climbing the thing. Now, I'm not saying accept bad wages. You know, ask for your raise for cost of living stuff. And if the job's there, go for it. But that does not define you. What if you were able to walk into your job and walk into these relationships you have with other people where you're working with them or working for them or even they're working underneath you and you were not thinking, I need to prove myself. I need to earn my worthiness to prove myself to other people. It can dramatically transform the way you see yourself. And that can carry us through the different seasons of life. Um, you know, different seasons are going to be different. <laughs> it's particularly true for, um, for moms. You know, a woman can be climbing the, the, the ladder of success in an industry, feeling great, have a kid, stay home for a few years. Or stay home for a lot of years. And then all of a sudden the world has dramatically shrunk in to just these kids. And the struggle can be, well, now I'm not doing anything. Before I was doing this, this, and this. And I was proving myself in this way. And I was, you know, the, the what is it? I was the girl boss. I was showing everybody how fierce I was and listening to it anyway. But what if? We have a worthiness that cannot give way even through the changing seasons of life. That means we can find delight when we're in a workplace. We can find delight even in the shrunken, you know, just that area of our home lives. We can find delight and joy in whatever our hands find to do, whatever that means in different seasons of life, because we aren't trying to prove ourselves. And our identity does not rest on how much we make or, you know, uh, how many write-ups we do or do not have at work. How many uh, B's or C's or D's or even failures we've gotten in report cards? Who we are defined by Jesus. And so, because that's true, we can do what Jesus says in this passage. We can imitate Him. And not get wrapped up in not doing it perfect. We can imitate Him and follow Him in His example. We can be like the child of a master artist who learns to draw by tracing his mom's pictures. And copy Jesus in loving and loving well. Not because we think we're going to do it perfectly. That's never the point. We can serve imperfectly. We can serve in weakness. And we can serve well. Because we know we have a foundation that isn't drawn from us. And can't give way. As I say it often, we found a love that we did not earn and cannot lose. So we can do good. And stop doing the math. We can do good and stop doing the math of whether somebody deserves our kindness and generosity. We can do good without trying to compete to each other with each other. We can imitate Jesus in ways that seem foolish and even humiliating. We can stoop low to serve and trust that God will work out the details. You are who Jesus says you are, so be free to serve. That means we get to my last point, which is really like a kind of trailer of next week's sermon. And that's this. The greatest tragedy is not that we sin, it's when we don't believe in forgiveness. The greatest tragedy is not that we sin, it's when we don't believe in forgiveness. There's one thing about this passage I haven't really mentioned yet, and it was there last week, it's here this week, and that's the issue of Judas. He's there. 
Judas Iscariot, the man who sold Jesus over after following him for three years to the religious leaders, the one who betrayed Jesus and handed Jesus over in the action that directly led to the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. He's there. He's having his feet washed here. He's having this dinner with Jesus. And our passage next week is when Judas finally leaves the room. It's the moment when he decides now. And he goes out to tell the leaders where they can find Jesus. Where I'll lead you to. And that's next week. But I want to say something that I'll probably say next week. It's that this, the greatest tragedy of Judas is not that he sinned. That's terrible enough, of course. He betrayed Jesus. The greatest tragedy of Judas isn't that he sinned. We all do that. The greatest tragedy of Judas is that he did not believe in forgiveness. If you know where the story of Judas leads, it ends in despair. He realizes what he's done. He's shocked out of his betrayal. And his life ends at his own hand. Because he cannot imagine that there exists a forgiveness that can overcome his sin. He does not believe that he can be anything other than a betrayer. This morning, if you're feeling like your sin is too big or too much, you're feeling a little bit like Judas, know that for all of us who come to Jesus by faith, the power of your sin to condemn you is taken away. Your hope, your assurance is in the promise that Jesus makes and His ability to come through on His promise. And He's shown His level of commitment to us. Because we're all little Judases in here. We've betrayed God over and over again. That's what sin is. Betrayal of who God is. But Jesus has shown His level of commitment to us to ensure that we are cleansed and redeemed. He showed it at His cross because even though He knew what Judas was doing, He allowed Him to do it. In fact, He tells Him to go out and do it. He faced that. In, Jesus faced that in grief and His heart was troubled. He showed His commitment to us in descending to the grave. Jesus didn't just get up on the cross for a minute and say, ouch, this hurts, and then get down. He experienced the shame and mockery. He experienced it unto death. And because we died, He died. He went into the grave because that is where we go. And He showed His intentions in resurrection. Rising up not just to vindicate Himself, but to bring to us newness of life. Friends, your hope is in Him and Him alone. Your hope is not your own intentions. Your hope is not your memory of the time when you decided to follow Him. Your hope is not a religious ceremony that you experienced, even one as important as baptism. Your hope is Jesus. So hope in Him. Let's hope in Him together. And let's serve like Him. Let's become His hands and feet. His body in this world that so desperately needs to see the power of humility at work. And let's live as those who lean on I love how uh, Sally Wood-Jones, the writer of the Jesus Story of the Bible, puts it. Let's lean on the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of Jesus for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you show us here, through your Son, your intentions for us. Thank you that you give us this bedrock, this foundation of confidence and worthiness. And you invite us to lean into it, to live out of it. So I pray that you would imprint this on our hearts. Even this week, because we are going to sin this week. We are going to act in selfishness this week. So Lord, I pray that when we do, that we would not fall into this spiral of shame and despair. But that we would know your grace right away. 
And that, Lord, as we see that grace, as we lean into it more and more, as our uh, hearts grow to be more and more like you, that we would feel and know you setting us free from sin. May we never give our sin more power than it has. It's a lie being unraveled. May we never treat our good works like they have more power than they have. They cannot justify us. But may we always, always, always lean on the sufficiency of who you are. I pray this in the name of Jesus.